From somewhere deep in the cloud and the corners of the earth, this is the Killing It Podcast with a focus on helping you make sense and dollars of all things IT with your hosts, Dave Sobel, Ryan Morris, and Carl Polichuk. Welcome to episode 124 of the Killing It podcast. I'm Carl, joined today by Dave and Ryan, and we are just cruising through summer here. It's gorgeous here. Like, I gotta say, like, it's like a nice 82 Fahrenheit all week. It's like really comfortable. We're not, we're not even having like the brutal Washington humid summer. We're like having this sort of light spell and it's like, it's really gorgeous. Where did humidity go? I don't know. Somewhere else in the country clearly has it and I didn't go looking for it. Yeah, well, exactly. You're never going to seek the humid. That is good riddance. But this is precisely the time of summer, the beginning of August when there's this there's this push in everything from television commercials to retail promotions that it's like well summer's over you might as well get ready for fall this is exactly the time when the answer is no there's still another month of summer left i will go out and and deliberately enjoy actual summertime and even if that means that uh, that i have to go out when it's 100 degrees in washington state and it shouldn't be i'll suck it up because i want more summer well, it's always 100 degrees here, so I'm good to go. The good news is we cool off at night. So, you know, I wake up in the morning, it's 60 degrees. I can still get in the hot tub, and, you know, it's not re- ridiculous. So, that's not we're, we're just enjoying that it's not, it's just sort of nice weather. And then the other thing that, that, you know, again, this is a wonderful local phenomenon is all y'all's representatives go back to your home states. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and we, get, we get August with a lot less people around because Congress shuts down for a little while. It's a traffic well, and it's, light. And it's, it's not just 535. It's all of their assistants and secretaries. All their whole teams, yeah. the staff, everybody disperses. And, and we get this slightly lighter time frame where all the federal employees, of course, are still around running the agencies. But, the, but with Congress out of session, we get a lighter get a bit of a lighter load in the area and things slow down. It's kind of nice. Yeah. The dog days of summer. See, the dog days, and I will tell you, that is a good time to be out there. Dog days means it's because you actually can slow down and, and owe to be a European this month where all of our client contacts over there are saying, you know, they're updating their out of office message on email to say, I'm out of office for the next 30 days and i right, shall exactly. not check email or get back to you let's check back in in september on a productivity note that's frustrating on a life quality note oh hey i wish i could be them i am Ooh. jealous of those europeans in august it is when i lived in ann arbor there was a french restaurant that closed for august it was like come on this is not france <laughs> <laughs> I want your tasty pastries. Come on. Lesson of the day, play to your current local audience. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, today we're brought to you by our friends at Ignite. Are you still using on-prem file servers and VPNs to share files with remote workers? Ignite is a business class cloud sharing solution that works more like your on-prem server than other solutions. With a security-first approach to file sharing and collaboration, Ignite offers multiple options for sharing files and collecting files from outside sources. And do it all, addressing data governance and compliance. Want to learn more? Check out ignite.com MSP. And when you do, tell them the guys from Killing It sent you. 
Excellent. Thank you very much for that endorsement. And let's dive into our first topic, a topic that uh, in general, we're going to focus on AI in real-time smart city applications. This time it's around a service or an application that is known as ShotSpotter, which I have been around for a number of years. I'm familiar with it in public safety, in uh, school settings, K-12 facilities, things like that. And it has the potential to be tremendously valuable technology. Essentially, there is a microphone that will determine when and by triangulation where a gunshot occurs, which, you know, if there's an active shooter incident in a school, instead of saying there's a shooter somewhere in the school, an array of microphones located throughout the facility can identify exactly when, exactly where, and if there is a pattern, a path that they are pursuing, and then law enforcement can respond directly precisely to that location, not search the entire building, but go to where the trouble is. That's a brilliant piece of technology. Right up until you do what the article we're linking to uh, demonstrates, which is when the authorities come back in and go, you know, I don't actually have any evidence to support the case I'd like to bring against a potential defendant. So let's go to that AI system and and not artificially intelligent manipulate it, but just, you know, human intelligence. Let's go back in and change the records. And you'll see as you guys read through the article that there are uh, unfortunately quite a number of these incidents, not an outlier case at all. AI, is it our friend in law enforcement or is it not yet ready for prime time? What say you? There was two takeaways for me here. And the first was we, we want to highlight very much the like, look, people can't go back and butts with the data. Like that's not how this works, right? So there's so there's a first element of which, but because that will lead to my second. It's important to understand where the human is versus where the algorithm is. Because that, because, and so that transparency of that is gonna be important. But that also leads to the transparency of the algorithm itself. Particularly when you're thinking about this from a legal perspective and you're trying to employ using a technology to make a judgment in court, it seems to me very reasonable to say, yeah, I need to understand that that algorithm doesn't have bias, doesn't have flaws, is vetted. And I think what where we're going to get to with what I hope we get to with this is that transparency is a feature. And I'll throw this to my security conversations too, where transparency as a feature is important. I think tr the more and more I hear about these things, I focus on this idea of transparency as a feature. And I think it's important to highlight that not enough people have latched on to that's a competitive advantage, my transparency. Here's one where it would really help. And the thing that I focused in on in the article is that once again, AI seems to be riddled with bias, right? If nothing else, they put these shot spotters in predominantly black and Hispanic neighborhoods. Like, hello. Now I, I get you, you know, you send cops where the crime is and all that argument, but it means that you just push the stats more in that direction. Right? There are people shooting in other neighborhoods, but they're not getting caught. And we also have to recognize Chicago has un, seemingly unsolvable problems when it comes to shootings. So, you know, it's, it's a big mess, but AI needs to have 
anti-bias be literally the first checkbox? What have we done to avoid using this incorrectly? Well, and, and that's, that's to your point, Carl. Uh, if it is a machine flaw where the algorithm itself artificially generates biased output, that's something that needs to be re-engineered. If it is a question of either, as you said, in the incidence of humans, not the machines, chose where to put those microphones, then that's a bias element that has to be done. And then in this case, you know, again, it usually my reaction to these kinds of news cases is, okay, that would be a horrible thing if it actually happened. If, it, oh, it could be manipulated. What, what would we do if somebody misused all of the artificial intelligence in the world and used it to tell the story they want told as opposed to the accurate one? Okay, well, that sounds like a movie plot. It would probably be horrible and we should, we should think about it existentially. Except this is not a movie plot. And apparently in the city of Chicago, where to Carl's point, 21,000 reports of gunfire every year, good Lord, and then a hundred other cities where it's being used, this is not necessarily a case of bad AI. It is AI being used in a bad way. And that is an extra layer of not just algorithmic and, and intelligence transparency, but the human transparency of the folks that are actually using these tools. Right. And so, and so I, as I said, I think for me, the big takeaway and the lesson on this is, is transparency is a feature. And I'm going to really be, I think I'm going to be forming more ideas around this as I go on, but I know we get a lot of our listeners are those in IT services and delivering. Think about that in the, the context of the services you delivery, deliver and in particular your security services that you delivering transparency and also you requiring transparency. Because if you're part of the chain, if you're in the channel, right? You are part of that system and you've got to look not just to your customers, but also back up the chain to your vendors, to the people you're supplying. And if you're going to deliver transparency, you have to require transparency. Right, and you know, in the code of ethics that uh, I, I proposed in that nine pillar document that I did uh, recently, one of the things in the code of ethics is, is about transparency, that we have to be honest with our clients about all the good stuff and all the bad stuff. And I mean, that's part of what a profession does. I mean, doctors make mistakes, but they have to tell you, right? at least theoretically, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, corporations make mistakes and should tell you. Uh, and you, even if you're not a monster big corporation worth millions and millions, uh, you need to be clear with your clients about what you've done, what you haven't done, what you're responsible for, and what you are not. Um, the AI question is always one <clears throat> where I wonder if there are young lawyers being brought up to say, how do you challenge this in court, right? If these are so intentionally biased, what do we do in court? You know, it's sort of like there are people who specialize in getting you out of running red lights. Well, there are people who probably specialize in uh, defending you against artificial intelligence being used by the police. Well, and you, you are correct, Carl, and even to the point where in the article here, it actually refers to the fact that the motion that was used to challenge this, it, it's happened enough that it has a name. It's called a Fry motion, and apparently it's named after a case where something was done incorrectly and used inappropriately, and therefore, dot, 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 there's now a legal standard for that thing. 
good Lord, that's a problem, right? And again, the, I think the bigger issue here is it's not the question of whether or not the tool is bad. It's whether or not humans are using it for bad purposes. And that is a story as old as time. Well, I will then use transparency as the link to our second topic. So the one of the things that I've been I know we've talked about on this show and I've talked about over on Business of Tech is this idea of incentives around cybersecurity. And I we're linking to an article uh, and it's a it's a perspective piece by Phil Venables. And it's interesting because he's been working through kind of incentives and questions around the way to approach it. And this one is the board of a company, a public board or a board of directors, and what their perspective on cybersecurity is. It's, it's a great read and it's kind of fascinating. It's, it's a bit of a thick read, so I'll read that earlier in the day. But <laughs> if if your if your premise, as mine is, is, is the way to change make changes in cybersecurity is tie incentives to the way things are action. This is a pretty good framework of five areas of practices to focus on, including risk limits and thresholds, scenario analysis, incident learning, ownership, and technology modernization. So worth diving into as IT consultants. Guys, I'm gonna throw this in, in there. If How do you think this hits for incentivizing boards to measure cybersecurity? Well, the first thing I would say is and the author points this out, it's hard, right? Because you're trying to deal with something that a lot of people in the business don't keep up on. And it's very difficult for people who are not in the business to understand it, the, all of the, the fine pieces of this and the constantly changing environment. Boards need to look at very broad uh, things. So, you know, the whole concept of modernization I think, you know, the biggest thing for me is there needs to be a commitment to that openness we just talked about. Like before there's an incident, you, you can make decisions about whether or not you're going to disclose it or, or whether or not you're going to push people one way or another. Kind of an analogy, I would say, is look at what China does, which is they, you know, punish people who are honest when things go wrong, <laughs> right? So people keep things quiet and stuff happens. Now that's the extreme, but a lot of corporations, I think are pre-wired to do that already. And so uh, the boards need to be looking at, at things at a higher level than just finance or uh, in the case of nonprofits, the reputation of their organization. Well, and, and I'll take it a step further, Dave, where you were going on what is the job or the role of a board in corporate governance and whether you are a publicly traded company in which there are legal commitments that and responsibilities that are made or a even a very small privately owned company that has a board of directors who are just there to give us advice. There are there are just a very few fundamental jobs of a board, and one of them is risk management to identify what could go wrong and how will we either avoid that or prepare for it in the case that that does happen. And where are the opportunities that we will look to going forward? But the stretch for me here where I want to make sure everybody's brain gets to is that when you are on a board, if you are being compensated for that, activity, you are legally in the position that is similar to a fiduciary, right? So in other words, if I have a financial advisor who is not a fiduciary and they give me advice that is good for them, but not good for me, well, whatever, I should probably 
buyer beware and, and work with somebody else. But if you sign an agreement that indicates you are a fiduciary, you are legally required to do what is in my best interest, not yours as the advisor. That is the same job responsibility, legally speaking, of a member of a board of directors. It is your legal responsibility to cause that business to do what is in its own best interest. Uh, what I find fascinating in the article is that they, you know, they'll give you a list of questions. Things that boards consider. What are our most important assets? What are the risks that might affect those things? Do we have any controls in place to mitigate those risks? Well, those are not questions about cybersecurity. Those are questions about business. Oh, by the way, they identically and perfectly align with the question of cybersecurity. In other words, it is the most natural thing in the world for a board to adopt the additional dimension of responsibility. Yes, you are looking for market opportunities. Yes, you are looking at strategic direction. And cybersecurity fits right into that portfolio. So one of the things that the article talks about is, you know, what's what's the level at which we trigger an incident and so forth. And I, I think part of what has to happen is boards need to have a commitment to some kind of education, but also flexibility, the ability to say, like, we don't know what's going on because the next big cyber incident is probably going to be something none of us imagined. Right. I mean, it, it's sort of like before 9-11, nobody planned for 9-11. Well, if you're the head of a monster corporation and something happens, you got to figure out how you're going to be flexible enough but knowledgeable enough. And, you know, there might be a job out there uh, for people who just want to educate boards of directors on cybersecurity, not because they're ever gonna make, you know, detailed uh, response decisions, but they need to make the high level decisions that are gonna guide um, in an emergency. And again, you don't know what the next emergency is gonna be or when it's gonna happen. Well, and, and to your point, Carl, uh, if I'm the person in the trenches running a function of a business, um, stopping and doing cybersecurity in addition to everything else I'm responsible for, that's extra, that's hard. Uh, maybe I don't wanna do that. And especially in the moment of crisis, stopping the paying attention to the crisis and actually paying attention to the, oh, by the way, levels of cybersecurity, for the people in the trenches, it is most likely that they're gonna look at cybersecurity and say, that's too much extra, I don't want to. But that's exactly where the board comes in and says, I don't care whether or not you want to. This is a this is a directive from the board. You must do these things, especially like think of it in the question of Dave's premise originally of transparency. If you have a cybersecurity breach, uh, will the marketing VP want to disclose that to the world? No, I can see many reasons why a marketing VP might go. No, don't tell anyone that we had a breach that will damage our brand. And that is exactly why it shouldn't be left up to the marketing VP. No, no, no offense to marketing VPs out there in the world. <laughs> Scenario analysis is where this becomes actionable. Take this, this as your, your takeaway. A board can ask for scenarios to be driven and then IT providers are the ones that can then implement it. And you can implement how that the scenario analysis is done, the scenario planning. It can go as little as we're going to develop plans for scenarios. It can go all the way to full kind of wargaming where you actually simulate that out. This is an actual opportunity for people to do something with. Alrighty, topic number three. Uh... 
reality isn't the same as what it used to be, and nor will it be <laughs> the same going forward. So we've been talking about deep fakes for uh, quite a while on and off on this show. And uh, the article we're pointing to today uh, has got some seriously interesting technology that is to try to find and, and demonstrate that deep fakes are in fact fake. But the article also says this will probably work for a year or two and then the deep fakes will be so good that uh, th there'll be no way to tell. And so this seems to be like another world of us getting into spy versus spy. And I'm just reminded about, you know, the, the ultimate problem with deep fakes. Uh, if you haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, um, when people get an image and they see something and it is totally in line with what they already believe, then even if they're later told that that was completely fake, the impression has already been made and it's hard for that to get washed out of your brain. So deep fakes, even if we know they're fake, are still extremely dangerous and we need to put serious energy into uh, ramping up the, the good side of the spy versus spy and really figuring out how to tell about what is fake and what is not. See, what's really interesting, Carlos, is I actually going to link this back to some of the education on technology that I think is important around security as well, like phishing attack. I think we need to be investing a little bit more in kind of media literacy in terms of understanding how you can discern information, how you can analyze it, put it in context, find multiple sources, and understand that you can't simply trust exactly what you see because a single data point is not necessarily enough, right? You can't, you can't necessarily latch onto, well, there's this one video. For the same way that you can't latch onto, there's this one person that said something happened. You actually have to have multiple sources. You need to understand how information gets verified. And this is something of a cultural solution as well as a technology solution. And by the way, the best problems to work on are the ones that involve people too, right? <laughs> is, is that we need to have that, learn that discerning eye of technology and media for this to, to, to ever be a manageable thing. Well, and, and in, a, in a slice of really good news, it is very positive that there are very smart people proactively working on this question. I believe if we go back into our archives, when we talked about deep fakes, maybe for the first time, literally two years ago, right, where we were fascinated with the technology and, and alarmed at what some of the accuracy of it could be. And there, there are some things out there that make you just go, that is disturbing on a technical and a societal level. That was literally two years ago that we were talking about that. Now, uh, don't ever think for an instant that the good guys and the bad guys have not been hard at work on this topic in the last two years and progress has been made on both sides. I think the most important takeaway on this article is that to your point, Carl, to disprove the negative, this is false and let me tell you why it was false. Psychologically, that is nearly impossible to accomplish. But to flip that and to say, I can prove and verify that this is real, 
that would be incredibly valuable. And then you actually create, whether it's a watermark or a brand uh, stamp or some endorsement that says, the video you are about to see has been analyzed and verified to be true. And unless you see that stamp on the front of it, assume the negative, right? I'm not here to try to prove to you that that's wrong. I don't know how much good that does. I mean, I, you know, in some sense, it would be delightful if there was a network where everything was vetted and there was a watermark or a an encrypted signature that said that, you know, like a blockchain that this video has not been altered and blah, blah, blah. That's not going to stop the Russians from creating a million Facebook accounts that show something else and uh, have it totally fake. So, you know, there, and, and the, unfortunately, the sad thing is having people engage the rational part of their brain comes too late. <laughs> so, so actually saying, hey, let's all stop and, and think about this for one second before we repost, we know that that doesn't work. Human curation of data? What a novel idea. I, I like Maybe people should get into that whole bit. <laughs> See, this endorsement would not stop the, the Russians from doing the million fake and deep fake accounts on Facebook. We all know that the only way to prevent that is for Facebook to prevent it. And they have told us very clearly they will not prevent it. Therefore, uh, it's on the rest of us in society to figure out how do you deal with this question of deepfake. Now, again, spend some time reading through this article because, again, this is a real example of what Microsoft and the BBC are doing to put out trustworthy content. We have always assumed your eyes will never deceive you. And then you went to a magic show one time and you realized, well, that's just not true. Things can be manipulated. And now we need to level up the technical maturity of the consumer audience to get them to understand just because you saw it on video does not mean that it is true unless it has been vetted and, and actually verified. That brings back a further Today's uh, one of Dave's kind of pet theories here. This is one of those cases where regulation is the only way to prevent the bad thing from happening is that the industry is not going to control itself here, quite frankly. It has to be some adult supervision from the outside and and they're not going to volunteer for it. Alrighty then. Um, well, you know, the good news is that somebody's working on this. And I think that that part of what we have to do is, as an industry, encourage people to actually go into this. Uh, sometimes the fix or the, 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 the good part that comes out of this is some simple little thing that nobody thought about, right? And with luck, somebody's working on that. I would love to see something where people actually said, I only want to subscribe to vetted content. Um, try that as a network. Unfortunately, eh, it may not be commercially viable. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think I think we're going to see more of that. But what, I, what I'm actually again, I'm going to try and make this actionable for listeners. There is value in training. There is value in training, and this in and thus, you know, focusing on the use of technology, the consumption of technology, how it works. It's it's bigger than just cybersecurity or product training. Like getting a, a culture of working with your customers on enablement and empowerment in all areas of this is where the value is. And this is just feels like one of those areas where maybe it's not all fully fleshed out, 
but there's an area here for value to be delivered to your customer bases that differentiates you in a bigger way than anything else. And once again, if, if you know anybody who's 18, just tell them cybersecurity technology, like that's what you should be studying in school. You will never be without a job. Yes, uh, it is absolute job security, but uh, please, for your own business purposes, do not just sell them the tool, teach them how to use it properly. That's where the value add actually comes into your name. And, and why you use it, not just how, but the why. Very good. Well, that is the end. Well, you have come to the end of another 30 minutes and episode 124 of the Killing It, Killing it! podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Killing It podcast. Please share with your friends and tell everyone to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the podcast places. Join us next week and help us keep killing it in the technology business.